When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This was Axel's moment of the making of his signature sound. He would sing in that register, and and some of the first times I heard it, it would just it would send shivers up my spine. <laughs> Welcome back to the first 50 gigs, Guns N' Roses, and the making of Appetite for Destruction. Today we interview Chris Weber, founding member of AXL, Rose, and Hollywood Rose, a trio that included Chris, Izzy Stradlin, and Axl Rose. Chris contributed to the genetic code of Appetite for Destruction with his guitar riffs and melodies that can be heard on songs like Anything Goes and Shadow of Your Love. When Chris was just 16, he was introduced to Izzy Stradlin by Tracy Guns in the parking lot of the Rainbow Bar and Grill, and it was there that they hopped in Chris's car and listened to cassette tapes of Hanoi Rocks and the New York Dolls that defined the style that they wanted to model. Chris talks to us today about forming these bands and laying the foundation for what would become Guns N' Roses. So welcome, Chris. Thank you for being here. Uh, my uh, pleasure. First of all, mm-hmm. where are we? in time and what's going on? What's the scene? Well, I've been friends with Tracy from high school and we spent you know, a lot of time together. Uh, he did have a band and his, and his band, I think it was Pyrus at the time, played Fairfax and I remember seeing them going like, man, I just do anything to, you know, just to get playing. So I hit up uh, Tracy occasionally and say, you know, do you want to you play? And he goes, you know, just, you know, my band's a one guitar player band. I go, okay, you know, on the on the occasion that we would go to the Rainbow, a lot of the times, and I was 16, maybe Tracy was 17. Um, so there wasn't a lot of getting into the Rainbow, which was 21, but there was a lot of hanging out in front. And that was kind of its own scene, as, as anybody from that time could tell you. People would stay around till, you know, after closing time till 3.30 in the morning, pairing off and hooking up and going, going to after hours and... Uh, and parties. You said uh, you have to be 21 to get in the rainbow if you were a guy, but if you were a girl, you only had to be 18 to get in. So True. one time Slash dressed up as a girl and, and got in <laughs> at 18. And, you know, they didn't even card him, but uh, no, he, he, we were born in 65. So he would take a pencil at, or a chalk actually and chalk out part of the five and we'd, we'd take a, pen, a sharp pencil and we'd make that five into a three. I remember and, that. At the rainbow one, one of those nights, um, you know, decked out in my, you know, glam attire. And uh, Tracy just said, he came up to me and he said, hey, listen, I've got, I've got this guy I want you to meet. And he's a guitar player. 
So oh, tell me about him. He says, well, he's this guy. It was Jeff. It was Dizzy. And he goes, um, yeah, he wants to start a band. And so I was, you know, I was excited. I mean, the fact that Tracy was turning me on to this guy, I knew that the guy was probably, you know, serious. Hung out in the Rainbow parking lot in, uh, it was actually in Tracy's dad's truck, which had this nice sound system. And we sat there for a couple hours just talking about, you know, what the band could be and musical taste. And that's the, the origins of, uh, of, the, of Hollywood Rose and you know, obviously soon to be Guns N' Roses. But initially it was AXL. It wasn't called Axel, it was AXL. And I think that there's a picture, I think it was either, Iz well, it was definitely Izzy or Axel climbed up on the one of the billboards on at the on sunset in la cienega like the peterson building and spray painted on you know on this white billboard because they hadn't put anything on it yet axl there's a picture of us in front of it so that was the kind of that was the first incarnation of that band and uh, i remember going over to where axel was which was this apartment building on whitley which is in right in the middle of hollywood just on the on the bottom of the Hollywood Hills, and on on the roof at the very far end of the roof, I sort of see something. And as we walk closer, across this rooftop in the middle of, I mean, it was a very hot day. I see I see Axel and he's sunbathing on the roof on this tar tar roof, like a little towel. And then as he said, "This is hey, this is Bill. He's my friend. He's going to sing." And that was it. That that was the the origin of that band. And so you were you were still in high school, I think, at this time. They were probably a little bit older. What was that like for you? I mean, did you, you know, could you see yourself going from hanging out in the parking lot to actually playing in some of the venues? What was that like for you as a teenager? You know, to be honest with you, I didn't think that far in advance. I really liked playing and music and um, I mean the gigs were great but I didn't grow up thinking I want to be on stage and I want to be you know a famous rock star I just wanted to play that was my whole thing since nine I got introduced to music through one of the guys that played with Steppenwolf and then a couple other guys from some other bands that were friends of my parents came into my life and they they were sort of mentors and I really was inspired by that so it was really about the music. So I, I, I didn't really think that far about gigging, but soon it was, let's, we need a tape because we need to get gigs. We need a demo tape. And that's the only way that you could get gigs. So Axel and Izzy, you know, they came out from Indiana to Los Angeles. Did you get the sense that they were more focused or, or had a mission to mm -hmm. make it? That's a really appropriate way to describe it. They, they, were, they, were, they were driven. They were driven and, and they knew where they were going. They knew what that looked like, or at least enough to kind of like get it to the next stage. You know, the writing process was interesting. Uh, you know, at the time, Izzy, I mean, he played a lot of instruments. His uh, strong points were um, his style and, you know, his, you know, song, some songwriting, right? But as far as the guitar playing, I mean, I had been playing for years and I was, pretty competent. So between his songwriting skills and my, uh, I was more riff oriented, um, listening to a lot of, you know, stuff when I was younger, Zeppelin and, and, 
Judas Priest and bands like that. I was more sort of guitar driven. So the songs kind of came together with me and Izzy putting to get them together. We would record them on a cassette tape, give them to Axel, and Axel would take them away. And then he'd write lyrics over the top. Reckless Life was written that way. Anything Goes was written that way. Some of the what other- Shadow of Your Love? Shadow of Your Love would have been written that way. That's how we, I think that's how we wrote all the songs. And I'm sure that Izzy contributed to it as well. Izzy's, Izzy's really the, the, the reason that that band, I think, even had anything was because of Izzy. I think he was the spark that really made everything work. To watch the video podcast of the first 50 gigs, that includes exclusive photos and videos from this episode and the entire season, join our growing community on Patreon and subscribe. This was Axel's, you know, moment of the making of his signature sound. Coming from Indiana, he did have a musical background, he had a singing background, but nobody sings like Axel. And everybody knows who he is as soon as he, you know, opens his mouth to sing. So he created a signature sound that was different than anything else going on at that time. It would be great to hear from your perspective what that was like, the voice in the making. He would sing in that register and it, and some of the first times I heard it, it would just, it would send shivers up my spine. How he got there, I, I mean, there's, I've never listened to any of the songs that he, from bands prior to our band. And I know that there's some rap, Rapid Fire or some other bands that are out there that um, he was in. I don't know what he sang like in those. I don't know if it's the same sound, but if it if it's not, then, then that would be in, in line with sort of him sort of doing that around us and saying, yes, let's have more of that. That's that's my memory of it. And I think Izzy would have really had been instrumental in kind of pulling that out of him or sort of encouraging it at least, cultivating it. Yeah, so it's, it's great because it wasn't just like you were in a band. There was a real intention behind what you guys were trying to create. A good amount of what was going on was image and style. That was, there was a lot of focus on that. In, in the early band, you know, that was, the music maybe came sort of organically without a lot of thought, at least from my perspective. As far as the sound was concerned, I know that we listened to a lot of bands that Izzy brought into the mix and we were inspired by a lot of those New York Dolls or um, Hanoi Rocks. They, they made a big contribution to the sound. Uh, and then my style, which was more sort of a rock style. Again, more Zeppelin or Judas Priest, I think Aerosmith. I pulled that into it, and you can hear that in some of the, the, the songs that are on, at least my, my song contributions that are in on the records, you know, have got more of a riff-oriented approach to them. Initially, the, the EP, which ended up being re-released as Guns N' Roses Lies, has Reckless Life and Move to the City on it. Uh, and both of those, the guitar, the guitar parts are sort of riff guitar parts. Mm -hmm. It's not just some strummy chords. And that was kind of more, my contribution would have been sort of bringing that element into it. So let's let's go back to kind of the evolution of the band. So AXL changes its name to Rose and you start booking some gigs, right? You start taking some promotional shots for your flyers. You guys start kind of coalescing as a real band that's, that's now gonna start playing some of these venues. I mean, before any of those venues, we, we had to, you had to provide a demo tape. That's how any booking agent would, would hear you. 
So one of the, one of the songs I wrote, which is "Anything Goes," which was which is on uh, "Appetite for Destruction," "Anything Goes," "Reckless Life," and then a couple other songs. We went in and we did a demo tape of those songs. The first thing that we did was as just as us three. We didn't even have a rhythm section. Book some time to go in and and, and record those in the studio. Um, and then we did find a drummer, which is Johnny, Johnny Christ, to do, to play drums on it. And I think he came in for one rehearsal. We showed him the songs and he was like, okay, I'm ready to go. So once you recorded the, the demo, what did you, what did you do with it? Did you start taking it around to the different venues? Yeah, basically, you know, Vicki Hamilton's or the Dale Gloria's or the, uh, whoever the, the booking agents of the, of the, the, the day were. You know, you would go, you would go, some of them worked out of the, the clubs themselves. So you go down to the club, you give them the tape and they call you up and they say, okay, you can do Tuesday at eight o'clock at eight o'clock on Tuesday. So when you guys were starting out and you were starting to perform as Rose and then, and then Hollywood Rose, who was top build? Who was at the, the top of the food chain at that time? Right. Wasp, Black and Blue, I think was the band. Uh, Motley Crue, it was just had just broken so they weren't in the sort of the clubs at that time but they would have just been in the year before hellion i mean there was lots of rock bands rat was just breaking at that point if you were a musician in in, in the mid 80s you know the stuff that people would talk about at least at the levels before the people were signed were you know the dream of sort of meeting a, a music industry attorney that can get your kick your taped to the right people and that's like i got a guy in the industry he's a, he's an attorney he's our attorney he's going to get us a deal or you know we got a demo deal from cbs or something like that and all those little small little step ups you know created a little bit of a buzz um you know to get to the next level was really you know lots of bands were big but nobody was really breaking you know i mean Certainly Motley Crue was sort of breaking. But other than that, there was just a lot of bands that were trying to pivot for, you know, the best spots and you know, the different clubs every night. And So for you, when did you feel the momentum was building? Did you get a sense that as you moved from Rose to Hollywood Rose, that there was beginning to be a following? There was the sound that people were, was gra were gravitating to? To be honest with you, I had such a great, uh, I felt so fulfilled just having a band that would rehearse and these guys that I kind of looked up to, which is, you know, uh, you know, I didn't have any brothers and sisters. So Izzy was like my my big brother. I really looked up to him. Kind of showed me how to, you know, we worked on how to, how to dress and sort of about socializing when you're when you're trying to get people to your shows, you gotta, you know, you have to turn on the charm. Most people were from, you know, Ohio or, you know, Mississippi or you know Nebraska and they would just get in a, get in on a bus or drive in a car and get to Los Angeles um, so a lot of people did leave their families to kind of make it in Los Angeles and that's where everybody was getting signed that was more the LA scene was the the 80s sort of although it, it didn't end up creating as many bands there were signed bands that were big there was a lot of buzz around that and that's where certainly the the uh, company's headquarters were so you could be seen at least yeah, but you know, some people took it more seriously than others. I mean, there were kids who came out pursuing the dream, but whether they were they wanted to take it all the way or not was another mm. story. There were also people on the street where really they really didn't have anything else. They didn't have a family to go back to. They didn't have a 
a job to go back to. This wasn't a hobby. This was like life or death. I mean, this was, mm -hmm. you know, no failure, right? This was, this was it. I don't think I don't think Axel was was ever going to go back. I mean, he was he was definitely rooted in Los Angeles, and um, you know, that's why I think that they were driven is because it's this idea that there's no there's no going back. To preview the full experience of the first 50 gigs video podcast that includes exclusive photos and videos from Mark's archive, check out the first 50 gigs YouTube channel. You'll find the link right here in our episode show notes. So in these first few gigs of Hollywood Rose, I mean, you know, talk a little bit about the dynamic, kind of what played out across a couple of those gigs. And then it kind of came to an abrupt end. I think we probably played one show under the name AXL. I think there's even a flyer that says AXL um, somewhere. The way I remember it is Axel got mad at something and uh, we were all kind of living at my parents' house for a time too. It was it was all because we were rehearsing there. So they, you know, they lived up there. My parents, you know, uh, were very supportive and my parents paid for the, gave me some money for the tape, for the, for the demo. So, you know, but in, in any case, it was a bit of a disagreement. And then I, Axel, he left. He said, "Oh, I'm done. I'm done with this." And then, and then it was like the dust settled, and he said, "Okay, well, let's do it again." And me and Izzy were never happy with the name AXL, so you know, I, I said, "Well, okay, we'll get the band back together, but we we, we got to change the name. We're we're going to change it to Rose." So we were, you were talking earlier about how everyone flooded the neighborhood with flyers and passing around flyers and putting flyers over everyone else's flyers. And mm -hmm. that all stopped about 20 years ago. All of a sudden, six months later, the city sends you a bill. Yeah. Club for like, you know, $3,000 because they charge you like $26 for each flyer they removed off of a city pole or, a, you know, in, anywhere like that. So th th it's a shame because the internet kind of, you know, people put their things on, on the internet now. and. There was just something about, you know, finding the flyer on the floor or seeing it on the wall and pulling it off and looking at it. And, you know, everyone really put everything into those flyers. And it's just something that's just gone that will never really be the same. And you would find every band, five guys in the band, be standing out in front of a club with a handful of flyers, each guy passing it to every girl that would walk by. And, and some of the guys would take them, too. So yeah, so it looks like you played uh, that gig in January and then the name changed to Hollywood Rose mm -hmm. and you played several gigs, you know, from March to May and then something happened. Something happened where you left the band and new Hollywood Rose was born. I think we just had a falling out. My memory was that Axel joined up with Tracy and, and did something with LA Guns. Uh, this is what I, I remember this part of it pretty well. Shortly after that gig of the Battle of the Bands, what happened was Izzy kind of left and went to London, the band London, not 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 the you know not not overseas, but and and Axel was working with Slash, and then Stephen and Steve Darrow came in and they became another version of the new Hollywood Rose. You know, it kind of fell apart, and then. It, became the new Hollywood Rose. Did you ever play any gigs as the new Hollywood Rose or just Hollywood Rose and Rose? Hollywood Rose and Rose. After three months of, of, of the new Hollywood Rose with Slash and Axel, 
that fell apart and Axel joined up with Tracy and he was in LA Guns for a, a little bit. And then that fell apart and, you know, LA Guns got a different singer and Slash was auditioning for Poison. So so the, the history that I have here, and we can compare notes because that's, that's what this is about, right? It's about pulling these threads together and trying to figure out how this how this all happened. I'm the um, I'm the Jason. I'm the color guy. I can't the the the, the stats are not my my forte. I'm color. No guy. no no. That's okay. That's okay. This is a collective effort, Chris. <laughs> so what I heard is that after you left, that Hollywood Rose held auditions, and Tracy Guns auditioned, and Slash auditioned, and I believe Axel wanted to go with Slash. Um, Tracy Guns didn't make the cut. Hollywood Rose, Izzy protested and he quit, and the new Hollywood Rose lineup was born, which was Axel, Slash, Steve Darrow, and uh, who was on drums? It was Steven. So Slash brought Steven in. I've never and, even seen and, any pictures of that with Steve Darrow and Steven in the same on the same stage. Yeah, we've actually got a couple gigs documented with them. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Look, then the new Hollywood Rose. Um, plays a couple gigs, but then flash forward six months later, and there's some reunion gig from Hollywood Rose that you participated in. I mean, that's the that was that New Year's ish date at the Dancing Waters with Steve with Steve Darrow and and Rob Rob Gardner played on that one, and then me Izzy and Axel, and we played songs that I hadn't played in. Hollywood Rose. So they had added uh, Nice Boys to the set. Uh, so that, that song had been introduced after I had left as a, as a cover song. What about, what about Don't Cry? Was Don't Cry at that played that night? I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember. I've got one picture from our, from that, that night. Uh, Dancing Waters was this interesting old club from, must have been built in the 20s or, or something like that. But you would basically play in front of like a sort of a man-made waterfall but they never they weren't using it anymore so it was all kind of fenced in it was very it was it was it was odd it was like a, something right out of mad max to watch the video podcast of the first 50 gigs that includes exclusive photos and videos from this episode and the entire season join our growing community on patreon and subscribe being a part of this history must have some meaning for you to have been a part of the, the tapestry of the origin story of the Appetite lineup of Guns N' Roses. You're obviously credited on songs, but there's something special and unique being part of the, what I'm calling the genetic makeup of that Appetite lineup. I didn't write any of the singles or the hit songs, right? My contribution is in songs that, you know, are just, you know, that, that are deeper cuts in some, right? But people will, will, you know, routinely when I'll, you know, they'll say, "What songs did you write?" and I'll and I'll tell them one of the songs, and they'll start singing the song back to me, and they and it's meaningful to them. So that that becomes my my connection with something bigger. I don't have any other way to 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 describe it other than it's almost like carving your name in you know in a in a in a rock that will be there, that everybody gets to see and will be there forever. You know, there's a there's some significance to that. You are a part of this history and your fingerprints are on that album and you are a part of this story. It's a story of an album that has meaning for millions of people 
across multiple generations. And, you know, you are a part of that. Well, when I went, when I saw you guys at Cazares, anything goes, grabbed a hold of me. And, and that, that, that was very memorable for me. Thanks. I, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a com there's a comic book, right? Uh, one of the first Guns N' Roses, they did a lot of comic books, apparently. You, you wouldn't know that, but there, there was a comic book made. And on like page two, there's, there's these, you know, the characters of Slash and Steven looking at Rose playing at Gazaris and saying, we're going to be in that band or something like that. And when you talk about that, Mark, it reminds me of that frame with his, a non, I, I have no face, but there's some players on stage. And, and we're like, well, I'm, I'm in a comic book because it's, because that's that gig that you're talking about. And not that, you know, that that's as significant as like, you know, you can you put you you put your connection to that. And I think everybody puts their connection when they talk about a song. It's like this is meaningful because of this. And that's also a, an interesting space to be in in life that until I was a father, I don't really have that in any other way from just saying. This was meaningful to me, like Mark just said, this was meaningful because I saw it happening live and it, and I remember that. That's a good thing. Uh, I have no illusions that, you know, that I got out too soon and I just missed the, missed the boat on that. It, it, it's because everything just clicked with those guys. I mean, that band worked because all those guys came together at the same time. My contribution led to something that needed other people to kind of participate in it and we're all better off for it. Yeah, it was, the, it was the right people at the right time contributing from different angles. And together was this massive amount of, of, of songwriting capability that just, you just can't really break it down. It's just that they, they all needed to be there to do it. Yeah, I mean, and again, that, you know, a lot of that comes from, you know, Izzy's contribution. Because his style of playing, if you do a hard pan and a hard, you know, left and right, and you hear, you can hear slash, but on the other side, you hear this very rhythmic, kind of sporadic guitar playing, you know, which is Izzy. And it, it just totally works. It makes that sound. And by itself, you probably, if you had somebody that was just doing, you know, wanting to get the best guitar in the thing, they'd say, man, you got to do that again. It's got to be crisp and clear and straightforward. But because it's, it's unique in him, it made that sound. It made the the, the, the the difference between him and Slash all that much more significant. It's like two really different type of players, not two guys that are playing different parts, but two very different types of players. And I think that's a main reason that that album sounds like that is because of Izzy. I mean, the look wouldn't have been there. There wouldn't have been any, there would, you know, everybody else in that, of that era was wearing either spandex or God knows what. We start wearing the teddy boy jackets and the bolo ties and the concho bracelets and belts. And Izzy and I would, you know, what Izzy was doing and I would just kind of, I, I started to do it with him. I didn't, he did it for money. I, I just did it because I wanted to do it with him, but making making all that jewelry was kind of part of how people, what, how he survived, you know, but it, it ended up being part of the look of the band. And then you bring in the funk and the punk that Duff brought from his influences yeah. and it worked. It, it it affected people. And I think we're all better off for the fact that Jimmy Page and, and Robert Plant got together. I think we're better better off, certainly better off when uh, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry met. 
And I think that this record is is in that because it 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 created something something for people to really grab onto. So what that group of guys needed to come together in that way with with my contribution and other people's contribution, it had to form with that production team and all the stuff that they went through to get that sound. You know, we're better because as a society, we're better because we get to listen to that. Thank you for your contribution to this album. And thank you for being so generous with us. We really appreciate uh, everything you've brought to this. You're welcome. Welcome. Thanks for doing it. It's a good, it's a good project needing to be done. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the first 50 gigs, Guns N' Roses, and the making of Appetite for Destruction. To watch the video podcast, access bonus episodes and galleries, and buy show merchandise, join our growing community on Patreon and subscribe.